All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on the 24th of November, 2020. And I do want to remind you, I write a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and I would welcome your subscriptions at uh, go to miningstocks.com. Uh, miningstocks.com or you can call our office here in New York 718-457-1426 chenpicks.com what is Chen buying what is Chen selling especially in the biotech sector and on the uh, oil and gas on the energy sector as well as the uh, as well as the precious metals and mining sector Chen is really on top of his game in all three of those sectors so what is Chen buying what is Chen selling go to chenpicks.com and we always like to remind you of a fellow named Michael Oliver, who's going to be with us in a couple of minutes from now. Michael's, uh, it's uh, olivermsa.com for his excellent MSA uh, momentum and structure analysis letter. It's just uh, absolutely one thing I would definitely feel um, really miss if I didn't have that uh, at my fingertips. It helps me to feel confident in the markets that I'm in. Uh, and give me a warning, an early warning signal when it, I might keep an eye on things. So nothing more valuable than that to a longer-term investor, that's for sure. I want to encourage all of you to send along your questions and comments, whatever whatever you might want to say to me or to to our staff. Uh, send it to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions at number four Taylor at gmail.com. And of course, we do want to thank our sponsors the, because they make this show possible. Our sponsors for this week's show, Benchmark Metals, NV Gold, Cassiar Gold Corp., Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Sitka Gold Corp., Lion One Metals, Grand Portage, uh, GMV Minerals, and SK Mining Corp. I've titled today's show, Waiting for the Next Herbert Hoover. John Rubino, Quentin Henning, and Michael Oliver return this week. Uh, we would. Uh, why would anybody want to be president of the United States? when America is facing an economic depression, the likes of which has not been seen since the 1930s? At least that is the question that's in my mind, and we're going to get some answers from from our guests today, um, especially John in the second half of today's show. The root of our economic travail is far deeper than COVID-19, evidenced by the repo market distresses in early, uh, that is in September 2019, and of course earlier this year as well when uh, when our uh, Federal Reserve had to do whatever it takes to keep the economy from slipping over into the precipice. Uh, and so that's a lot bigger. The issue is a lot bigger than COVID-19, although that certainly has has really accelerated our 
uh, or difficulties, no doubt about that. As 2021 unfolds, the economic landscape, uh, I dare say, will be littered with massive corporate city and individual bankruptcies. And in dealing with those economic dead bodies, what policies can be expected from the next president and how will they impact the markets and, more importantly, I would argue, our liberties and our freedom. So we'll talk to John about that, uh, John Rubino, in the second half. And one industry that is certainly doing well now from a profit and loss perspective is the gold mining uh, industry and, uh, by extension, then the gold exploration companies. And Quinton Henning will be with us to uh, update us on the successes that Irving Resources is experiencing in Japan right after the break, uh, right after our first commercial break. Uh, but right now, I'm really pleased to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me once again. We always miss Michael, but he's here, thankfully, every other week. So it's great to have you again. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Good to have you with me. And I know you're talking to us from the Rocky Mountains somewhere out there in Colorado. And uh, I, I'm sort of envious of you, I must say. Uh, I, I want to ask about Bitcoin. I, I'm looking at your, uh, I think it was a November 13th, uh, missive that you put out, and boy, it just it really it really showed up. Bitcoin seems to be taking off like mad. But what what do you say about Bitcoin and gold? Because gold seems to be getting, you know, having a little difficult time now, or or it's certainly not on the uptrend right now. But Bitcoin certainly is. What are your thoughts? Well, I don't think there's a great uh, technical synchronicity between the two um, in terms of you know month to month, week to week. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Bitcoin's rallying now up to a new high. Well, gold made a new high, all-time high, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, in August. So, you know, I don't know who's leading who, okay, you know, if you want to make that case. Um, yeah. um, Bitcoin has me in an intellectual quandary. Uh, to some extent, I think that's reflected by Jesse Felder also and Fleckenstein, uh, uh, who, mm-hmm. while acknowledging the viability to some extent of Bitcoin as an alternative currency. Uh, it's, of course, unbacked, but it's not run by governments. And to some extent, and I, I'm not fully up on all this, uh, Bill Fleckenstein is more so than I am. Uh, it is has a limit to the capacity of the, you know, how many Bitcoins can be produced. Right. Although mm-hmm. I understand there's some that it's questionable. But the millennials have gotten behind this. You know, they love mm-hmm. it. It's, it's their mm-hmm. speculative vehicle. And it is at least not central bank produced, although some of the central banks are talking about it. Uh, even Powell has mentioned uh, maybe the need at some point, once he thinks the functionality is good, that the government issue its own sort of cryptocurrency so mm-hmm. they can facilitate a uh, flow of money to people. Instead of mailing checks out and so forth, because um, he has a very urgent lump in his throat, uh, which he's made clear, but uh, a lot of people aren't aware of. It's not just coronavirus that's got him concerned, and he's at least honest in that regard. But I, I'm a technically, yeah, Bitcoin looks good. Uh, it's mm-hmm. looked, it looked terrible when it came on board in late '17. We were bearish as uh, can be. Um, it, that's when it first started trading on the CME, and sure enough, mm-hmm. it collapsed. We thought it would collapse to five thousand. It didn't. It went to about three thousand something. Mm-hmm. As it turned back up and got above five thousand, we got bullish again, and we remained bullish since. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's been a you know technically 
feasible market in terms of you know our ability to assess it. Uh, I'm just not clear, certain, maybe I'm just too old <laughs> to no. appreciate the, the concept. Uh, mm-hmm. I prefer gold as the alternative. Uh, first off, the, the cryptocurrencies are, you know, they're, they're done via the Internet, and uh, government can, to some extent, control some of those events if they want to, mm-hmm. more so than they can coins and bullion, especially, you know, now uh, Roosevelt did, but uh, I dare say that if any president attempts to limit people's ability to use or acquire or hold or exchange gold and silver, uh, they're going to face a rebellion. So it, it's not a functional notion that they can do what Roosevelt did. Uh, they'll have riots on their hands. So I think gold, to some extent, is, you know, is his historical role is being played out. Uh, if you ask me right now where's gold going, I'd say it's going to approach 10000 an ounce. Wow. And it may do it in a couple of years. Now, mm-hmm. right now, everybody's panicked again um, <laughs> because of the recent drop. Yeah. And uh, you, you happen to call me on the day where we're, you know, we're making a new low for this pullback. Yeah, yeah. it's a great day uh, to talk to you. The, uh, we turned bullish at MSA based on annual momentum in February of 2016, several months off the low. At a price, as gold price recovered back over $1,140, its low had been 1054. We've not changed our view on the annual momentum trend of gold since then. There have been four corrective moves since that breakout at 1140 in February 2016. The first one was in late 2016 and was 18.4% drop from the high that had preceded it. Then it turned around and made new highs. Mm-hmm. Then in 2018, there was another sell-off of 15% during the first half of 2018. Mm-hmm. Then in March of 2020, there was another 15% correction, the very sharp mm-hmm. one. Right now, we've had a 13% pullback. And in each of these pullbacks, though it scares every price chart watcher I can name, because they're looking at daily and weekly, and they see some low coming out, and they think, therefore, it's a major top. The context of annual momentum is saying, ignore it. Mm -hmm. These are all corrections. They're buying opportunities. They're not selling situations. Uh, uh, We issued a logarithmic, simple logarithmic price chart the other day to our subscribers. I don't usually do this, but usually we focus on momentum. But the logarithmic price chart is very interesting. The, since 1975, when we had our peak at 200 and we dropped down to about 100 in 1976, if you go from that point forward and plot gold on a monthly closing basis, dot, 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 mm-hmm. but on a log scale, logarithmic scale, the mm-hmm. move from the low in 76 to the 1980 high was X percent on the logarithmic scale. You could, there's mm-hmm. a certain amount. If you take that amount and add it to the bull market that moved from 2000 to 2011, it was the exact same logarithmic move in terms of mm-hmm. the dimension of the move. Mm-hmm. If you measure from the low we made at 1054 back in late 2015, and mm-hmm. swing it up one more time. Mm-hmm. And remember, we're in all-time new highs on this log-scale chart. Right. All this noisy action we've seen the last three or four months is mm-hmm. twisting and turning above the high monthly close of 2011. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. If you have a third move of the same dimension, mm-hmm. proportional dimension, it pushes up toward about 9,000. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I see no, no argument against that. Mm-hmm. My only argument with some folks is that I think now, rather than incremental trends in markets getting from A to Z over years, like Ray Dalio, for example, a major hedge fund manager everybody knows yeah. about, who's not a gold bug, who's suddenly mm-hmm. become very friendly to gold over the last month or two, saying that mm-hmm. the, you know, the Federal Reserve is effectively destroying the currency, the money mm-hmm. investors need to pay attention to that, he said. So uh, if, if we simply extend this bull market on the ratio of those two prior ones, Mm-hmm. Go to 9,000. He, he used mm-hmm. the word five years, and he wasn't projecting a price on gold, but he was saying that this crisis that we're facing could last over the next five years. In my view, it could last over the next year, mm-hmm. because I think that incrementalism is going to go by the way very quickly, and we're going to go to chaos theory, where things happen far more rapidly than what we're used to. We'll see. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong on that. But mm-hmm. right now, the current drop in gold... Uh, I'm looking to buy, not sell. Yeah, I was going to ask Period. you. Uh, it's, frankly, it's certainly, I think we uh, might be there. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. Well, um, I must say that I did a little of that myself today. Just with a couple of minutes left, then, is the dollar looking weak to you at this point? Yeah, the dollar, this is interesting. The gold drop did not associate itself in any manner with a dollar rally. Mm-hmm. Did not associate itself in any manner with a stock sell-off, which a lot of people think, you know, gold sells off with stock sell-off. Well, that wasn't the case. There's no correlation whatsoever in the gold sell-off to any other normal, popularly assumed linkages. Mm-hmm. And even the commodity index, the commodity complex, the Bloomberg Commodity Index, is making new highs for this recovery. As far as we're concerned, is only just beginning a major bull trend. Mm-hmm. Well, how can we have gold topping, as many people are screaming? Yeah, right. And yet the Bloomberg Commodity Index is only just now breaking out of a massive <laughs> momentum base. Yeah. Yeah. There's zoologic there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think a week or two ago, the last time we spoke, but perhaps you were really bullish on oil. Is that is that really doing it well, I think? Huh? It's uh, pushing over 45 now. I think it could run up into the low 50s. I think ultimately next year you could see it in the 70s. Now, wow. the, the real gain in the oil complex, I don't think is oil on a percent basis. It's the oil subsectors that have been beat to, to effectively zero. Mm-hmm. And they're coming to life in percentages that are unbelievable. Day by day, we're seeing 8 and 9% rallies in some of these uh, uh, subsector oil ETFs mm-hmm. as they explode up off of unrealistic lows. So, But there's mm-hmm. a lot of opportunities out there, I think, in the commodity complex. And uh, gold right. is still the leader of that complex. All right. It will reassert itself. Very good. Well, certainly you'll be keeping your subscribers abreast of these opportunities. You do a, an excellent job of it, Michael, and I... Really appreciate your service, and I hope that uh, some of our listeners out there will go to MSA, OliverMSA.com and sign up. Uh, thanks again, Michael, for being with us. Always a pleasure and always uh, very, very helpful to have you with us. Thanks so much. Thank you much, Jay. Bye. All righty. Uh, folks, we do have to go to break, but don't go away. Quentin Henning will be with me to talk about Irving Resources, uh, making some real, real considerable progress. Uh, in uh, with their project in Japan. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Quentin Henning. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Benchmark Metals is an advanced gold-silver exploration company that is rapidly advancing its Canadian gold-silver project to a production decision. Benchmark is nearing completion of its largest program to date, with up to 100,000 meters of resource expansion and definition drilling in 2020. The multi-million ounce potential project is expected to have a new mineral resource estimate and PEA study completed in 2021. The company is backed by the Metals Group management team and believes this aggressive program will be complemented by one of the strongest commodity bull markets in decades. Visit BenchmarkMetals.com and subscribe to follow their success. Cassiar Gold Corp. trades on the OTCQB under the symbol CGLCF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GLDC. Its flagship asset, the Cassiar Gold Project, is a large advanced stage road-accessible gold property with an NI43-101 compliant resource estimate of 1 million ounces at 1.43 grams per ton gold at the Taurus near-surface bulk tonnage gold deposit and 15 kilometers of high-grade gold prospects. The property hosts several past-producing high-grade gold mines and is in search for the next multi-million ounce gold camp in British Columbia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jake Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dr. Quentin Henning. He's with me today to talk about Irving Resources and that company's really substantial progress that they're making in Japan. Quentin is a technical advisor for Irving, and he is uh, on the board of directors. Quentin has worked uh, for many years in a couple of different projects with Akiko Levinson. She's the president of Irving Resources. Akiko is a very bright, delightful soft-spoken lady of Japanese descent who's very, she's just really essential to this company's connections in Japan and, and all that's going on. And Quentin then provides such uh, such wonderful uh, technical advice to, uh, to Irving as he does with several other companies. The prospects for Irving in Japan appear very positive given that it will not need to build a mill to enter production sometime in the future, but it will be able to ship direct, just direct ship material to Japanese smelters, which then will do the milling for Irving, uh, and uh, actually give them some value for the silica material that that, uh, hosts the gold and silver that are in the veins. So this is a a very unique project, a really great story, one of my favorites for sure, and it's really great to have Quentin with me. Again, uh, trades in Toronto, um, Irving trades there under the symbol IRV, IRVRF in the U.S., 58 million shares outstanding. I saw a little earlier today $1.89 in U.S. money, giving a market cap of around $110 million. Thanks for joining me again, Quentin. Thank you, Jay. You know, um, just for the sake of some of our listeners that maybe haven't heard of Irving before, um, could you... Just tell us a little bit about where the project is and, and what you have accomplished so far uh, and what your plans are in 2021. 
for the Omu Omu project. Okay, certainly. Look, uh, Irving is a Japanese-focused explorer. We're pursuing a a little bit unique uh, business model. We're looking for, as you said, uh, high high precious metal value uh, silica veins. These are effectively epithermal veins, hot spring veins, that um, that can be used for smelter flux. Okay, we don't uh, anticipate needing to build a mill or you know have conventional processing things mm-hmm. like this. So we're really looking uh, looking at this as an exercise to find rock that is suitable as smelter flux. And we have our flagship project in Hokkaido. It's called Omu O M U. It is uh, along the uh, the northern or northeastern coast of Hokkaido. If you look at the island of Hokkaido, which is the northernmost island in Japan, it's kind of a diamond shape. And this uh, this little town, Omu, is situated along the, the northeast edge of that diamond. Mm-hmm. Um, the project uh, has uh, it has really three major hot spring systems within the uh, the tenement holdings we have. Uh, that's how, mu- how much we've identified to date. Um, we've drilled uh, two of those to date. We're, we're anticipating drilling the third next year, uh, which, which is really a, you know, one of our most important targets. It's, you know, this COVID uh, situation has been an exercise in patience, so mm-hmm. I'll be fine, but uh, we will get to drilling that third target next year. But in the meantime, we've been drilling it two targets. One is called uh, Omu Center. We actually are drilling there right now. We're, we're just about to wrap up the season here, uh, but we're doing some follow-up drilling on some, some really good results we've had over the past, say, uh, 12, 14 months like that uh, at, at, at Omu Center. And then earlier this year, we drilled at the, the Omui Mine Site. The Omui Mine Site is the site of a historic mine Produced a little bit of uh, ore, again, it's smelter flux. This, this is kind of a tradition in Japan, using a silica like this is smelter flux. So there was a small amount of ore extracted from this mine site. Now, uh, we are, you know, developing this at a bigger scale, you know, using modern exploration techniques. Mm-hmm. And we are uh, looking at uh, a deeper vein system here. You know, we can see good evidence that there's a, a much more extensive high-grade vein system underneath Omui. Uh, we did a lot of both ge- ge- physical work as well as geochemical work to build up the targets on the property. Uh, we have uh, some drilling from late last year, including hole 10, which hit just innumerable veins. I can't remember. something like 20-odd veins in one hole. Phenomenal uh, success. There were some very high grades in there. Uh, then earlier this year, we, we came back and we drilled uh, a new area, which is about 600 meters southeast of that, that, the site of that discovery. This area is called Nanko, and we, we, in, in the first two holes we drilled at Nanko this year, we hit uh, some very nice grades. Uh, now, uh, in, and what I mean by very nice grades, uh, for example, hole 3, OMI 3, Mm-hmm. Uh, hit a uh, long interval, 14.24 grams of, uh, or sorry, 14.24 meters yeah. of about 3.6 gram uh, gold, 69 gram silver. It's about four and a half gram gold equivalent. Uh, we also hit uh, a, a lower but high grade zone, about uh, 1.72 meters, 21.7 grams gold, 538.9 grams silver, which is about 28.8 gram. Uh, gold equivalent. Now, mm-hmm. 
we came back uh, and drilled two more holes in the vicinity of hole three. One was above and one was below. And we wanted to test the, um, you know, the, the volume of rock around hole three to get a better handle on, on the veins and orientations. And um, in, in doing so, we hit a, just an astounding uh, long interval, about almost nearly 82 meters of running a gram gold and about 31 gram silver. So about one gram gold and about one ounce per ton silver. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that comes to 1.4 gram gold equivalent. Now, the, you know, most of that was, by the way, silicious material, it basically mm-hmm. sitting right at surface. It started very shallow. So then the question became, well, you know, is that in itself a target? Well, we don't know exactly, but, you know, th- it's high silica material. Um, there are some silica flux mines in Japan operating at these kind of grades, so, you know, it is conceivable. Uh, but but below that, there were some, some nice veins as well. For example, 1.6 meters uh, at 7 gram gold and about 102 gram silver, which is about 8.4 gram gold equivalent. You know, so that we, we, you know, and then uh, a bit lower, we hit some, uh, you know, some uh, higher silver mineralization. We hit 1.4 meters of 5 gram gold and 169 gram silver. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about 7, 7.3 gram gold equivalent. So mm-hmm. we're seeing... We're seeing, uh, you know, continuity of the vein system. We're seeing a very big uh, hydrothermal system here. Uh, these these holes kind of confirm that we we've tagged into a very big hot spring system. Uh, we've drilled, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, four holes after hole five that are in for assay right now, and we'll we'll see where where this puts us. But uh, I think we're on to you know, there's n- no change in our overall trajectory. We're on to a very big. Uh, epithermal vein system here with nice precious metal values, ideal silicate contents, uh, and very well suited for smelter smelter flux material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you recently picked up another project uh, that you're really excited about. Uh, it has some rich history to it. I, I think it's called the Yaga, uh, Yamagano uh, project. Uh, the, that is, at least you have an option on that. Is that we, right? Have, we've yeah. actually, we've, uh, that's correct. We've got, uh, we signed a definitive here recently. I think we announced that about mm-hmm. three or four weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we picked it up from the Shimatsu family. Shimatsu's uh, family goes back in history a long time, you know, like 400 years to that old period. They're very famous. Uh, you know, they're kind of like the Rockefellers of Japan, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've held the Yamagano district, which is in uh, it's on the island of Kyushu, so it's on the polar opposite end of the country oh. from uh, from Omu. Uh, but we we managed to stake some claims right next to it, so consolidated between the ground that we picked up from uh, the Shimatsu, as well as the tenements that we've staked, uh, we control uh, a very very prospective target. Now let me put it in constant context. Yamagano is just a few kilometers, about 11 kilometers southwest of the Hishikari mine. And the Hishikari mine is the most famous gold mine in Japan. It's been operating for, uh, I believe, close to 30 years now. Very high grades. It's produced something like 8 million ounces at a phenomenal grade of, uh, average grade of probably over an ounce and a half per ton. <laughs> it, it, and, it, and it's used, once again, it's, it's primarily used as smelter flux. Okay, so, so this uh, area, you know, is known to generate very big high-grade vein systems. So we're very encouraged by this Yamagana target. We're starting to gear up uh, planning for 
doing our basic geophysics and geochemistry, et cetera, in early 2021 on the notion that we can advance it towards drill stage fairly quickly. Uh, Yamagano did produce significant gold in, in ancient times, so back about 400 years ago. Yamagano was uh, a, a site of a gold rush, produced a lot of gold, upwards of uh, 80 tons is what we've been told, so that's about two, a little over 2.5 million ounces. Mm. But I think we're, we're onto an incredible new opportunity uh, you know, that's uh, you know, uh, comparable to the Omu target that we have up in Hokkaido. Oh, that's uh, really exciting, and you're well financed, I believe. You're you're uh, you're going to have to raise any money anytime soon to keep going, or are you? Nope, or what nope. Are you? we got plenty of cash. We got a little over ten million dollars. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, Newmont and uh, Sumitomo Corporation are both shareholders. Uh, we anticipate they will likely uh, want to put in additional funding uh, to fund our two thousand uh, twenty or yeah, twenty twenty one program. Uh, this is, you know, if, if that comes to fruition, then uh, this basically puts Irving on the uh, a track of not needing to go back to the market and having this wonderful support from these long-term shareholders. You know, it's a, a shared vision that we we find the next great gold mines in Japan, and everybody's uh, basically working on the same team. Yeah, I mean, and uh, remind my listeners again, there's only 58 million shares out there, so... Um, you know, if you start finding something right. of, of very, you know, of significance, it starts to look mineable and highly economic. I think the the share prices could certainly be be in for a, a nice ride higher. Uh, what do you think then, Quentin? What should investors be keeping their eyes on? Uh, what drivers? What share price drivers? I guess just more assays, or, or what should they be watching? Yeah, for? we'll have assays from four more holes here from a week. Over the next couple of months, uh, you know, assays are slow to turn around. We're going through Vancouver, and that lab is is full of samples at the moment. Um, but uh, we will have assays either by late this year or early next year. Uh, the other drivers, we've got uh, our drill, drilling at the Olmu Center. We just completed a hole there. Uh, we'll, we're, it's the first of four holes that we'll be drilling there. Uh, so we'll have news around that. We'll basically continue drilling into 2021. COVID is, you know, putting a limit to how much uh, meterage we can get. You know, we have to take certain precautions. Uh, it's very limiting to let people, you know, our drillers come in and out of country. So um, they'll take a break here for about a month and a half or so and then hit it hard next year. But we anticipate a long, continuous drill season next year, including testing uh, that third target, which is Hokurio. Uh, and I would... It, you know, I'd say Yamagano should also generate some very exciting news as we we do the initial work there and get it ready for drill readiness uh, by late next year. Yeah, uh, that Hokoyama, uh, how do you pronounce it? It looks uh, like um, yeah, Hokuryu. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah Hokuryu is the third target at, at Omu. Looks very mm-hmm. exciting. In fact, that one is, I think, collectively between us, Newmont, and so forth. I think we all feel that that's uh, one of the highest value targets in the, the Omu property. Uh, and then Yamagano is like the to be frank, it's the crown jewel of Japan exploration. That that one has always been viewed as the highest perspective tenement. And to put in context, Akiko cut a deal with the Shimatsus after many many people have tried. I mean, that shows you how <laughs> remarkable she is. She's an yeah, incredible. yeah. It, it's it's really it's really wonderful. You know, it's a yeah. I'm just looking at a uh, a slide that you have in your on your website. Um, it's the Blake sample results and it looks like uh, that um, it sort of connects there with Umu Center, huh? that, uh, at least at least from the plague samples. Uh, you, you're talking about uh, the Hokuria area. Yeah, yeah right. Uh-huh. Yeah, 
it's it's uh, you know you can kind of think of these hot spring systems as all part of the same global system. If, look, if you go to Yellowstone Park, you, you know, and you drive around for a few hours, you'll see hot spring centers all over the place. They're all active right now. Well, that's what this area would have looked mm-hmm. like. Uh, it would have looked like uh, Yellowstone Park, you know, back about 12 million years ago. Each one of those hot springs has, you know, a good chance of finding high-grade veins below it. Yeah, uh, it's exciting. Very exciting. Thanks again, uh, Quentin, uh, for, for joining us and giving us an update on this very exciting story. Uh, we'll look to, to do it again sometime, hopefully. Thank you, Jay. So, all righty, folks. Well, that is, uh, we have to go to break now, but when we come back, John Rubino will be here. We're going to talk about some of the big choices the next government's going to have to make in uh, the U.S. government, the next president's going to have to make. Um, you know, they're going to have to bail everyone out in sight with trillions of dollars or watch big parts of the economy evaporate. These are questions that we'll be probing with John Rubino right after the break, so don't go away. Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. NV Gold Core, trading under NVX on the TSX and NVGLF on the OTC, is a gold exploration company focused on uncovering the next multi million ounce gold deposit in North America. With an aggressive exploration season ahead in 2020, a tight share structure, strong management ownership, key strategic investors including Eric Sprott, a globally recognized technical team, technical coverage from industry gold experts, and cash in its treasury. Visit NVGoldCore.com to learn more on this exciting story. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm Jay Taylor, your host, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again John Rubino of DollarCollapse.com. That's a, uh, I, would, I would call that a, a one-stop shop place to go for uh, key important information on the economy and on the precious metals markets and uh, a lot of other things. Uh, thanks so much for being with us again, John. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me back. Always, always good to talk with you. Um, and I, and I just, you know, want to talk a little bit. Of, we've titled today's show um, "Waiting uh, for uh, uh, Waiting for the Next Herbert Hoover." Um, I think is the way we put it. Uh, I, I, my own thinking was, who in the world would want to be president when we're heading into some, the kind of difficulties that we seem to be heading into economically? Now, I don't think most people. Most people think when. You know, when the uh, vaccines come, we'll just be back to normal. Uh, everything's going to be honky-dory. Uh, but I don't believe you think that. But I'd like to ask you, what do you think now? It, it looks, you know, 99.9% certain it's going to be a Biden presidency. Uh, it's all over but the shouting, so to speak, and, uh, and the Electoral College uh, certifying. But um, 
what, what do you see coming down the pike for, for this government, um, especially, let's say, that the Senate goes to the Democrats? Well, if the Senate went to the Democrats and the Democrats were completely in charge of the government, yeah. we would see immense amounts of spending. Because, you know, the main priority in the year ahead for the Democrats is to bail out the cities and states that are bankrupt. Right. Because those, right. those entities are mostly run by Democrats. Right. And they're mostly populated by public sector employees. So that's that's a totally Democrat scene in Chicago or Los Angeles or someplace like that. So they, they really, really don't want um, those cities and states to go bankrupt. Republicans don't care so much. <laughs> so if we have a divided government uh, where the Republicans hang on to the Senate, they're not going to be in any hurry to bail out, you know, Chicago or someplace like that, because what's in it for them? And uh, so, so then things get really dicey. But basically, um, 2021 in general is, is a very big decision year because the pandemic effectively bankrupted all kinds of industries and states and cities. Uh, you know, these, these things just like the airlines or the cruise ships or hotels or restaurants or, uh, you know, a lot of cities just basically can't make payroll given the situation with their customer base and their taxpayers. Um, and if they don't get some new money from somewhere, they're going to have to start defaulting on their bonds, laying people off, and you know, generally just freaking out the rest of the economy. So nobody wants that. Uh, but the, the amount of money that's necessary to bail them all out is so immense that it's a big decision for a government. I mean, if it, if it takes half a billion or half a trillion dollars to do it, it's a no-brainer. You go ahead and do it. But if it takes $8 trillion to do it, then that's kind of a different thing because you're borrowing so much money and creating so much new currency in order to finance all that new debt that you shift the pressure over to different parts of the financial markets. You know, the bond market will be okay in that kind of a situation, but maybe the currency markets won't. In other words, who wants to own the currency of a country that's doing something like that? So that's the decision that has to be made next year. You know, this is the kind of thing we've been kicking down the road for a really mm -hmm. long time because we could get away with it. But the, uh, the pandemic and the government policies that flowed from the pandemic have, um, have put us on the spot for next year. There's no way to kick this down the road. So we're either going to have to, you know, literally bail out five or six or seven trillion dollars worth of um, zombie entities out there in the next year, or we're going to let them go bankrupt. And we're going to have, or we're going to risk a 1930s style depression. And that's where Herbert Hoover comes into the discussion, because who's ever in charge when the latter thing happens, if we were to have a deflationary depression because mm -hmm. of all this, mm -hmm. uh, whoever's in charge is going to be tainted with it, right? Uh, you know, we still remember Herbert Hoover's name to this yeah. day because he presided over the beginnings of the Great Depression. Uh, and we would not know who he was otherwise. Historians would, but regular people would not know mm -hmm. that name. Uh, nobody wants to be this generation's Herbert Hoover, but oh, whoever's exactly. in charge is running that risk. And that's why... Um, you know, you, you kind of alluded to how you got to view these elections with mixed feelings. Mm -hmm. Because it, say your guy wins, um, he wins a position of power in a really untenable situation where anything he does risks uh, a gigantic crisis that puts him in the history books forever. So you don't really want that for a politician that you like. So 
you know, it's almost like it's better if the other guy wins because then they're the ones who might be, um, they and their party might be tainted for a whole generation as being the people who presided over the biggest crash in history. So very interesting year coming up next year. <laughs> That's an understatement, I would say. Um, so, John, let's say that the Republicans retain control of the Senate and they need to win one of those one of those seats. Uh, it, they need to just win one. Uh, I don't know what the prospects are of them winning. I don't know. I, I have no idea. I think you can't believe the pollsters. They're so wrong all the time. Um, so I don't I have no idea. But let's say that the Republicans hold the Senate. Um, better chance for a deflationary event then in that in that do you think in that case um a a bigger risk that divided government will lead to well here's what will happen probably um the the government will dither they won't come out with all the money for everybody that needs it and the stock market will see that note that that there are a lot of big bankruptcies coming down the Mm -hmm. uh the pipe and freak out. We'll get something like we had in March of this year when the stock market just fell off the table. Mm-hmm. And that will galvanize opinion in Washington. In other words, everybody will panic at once. It won't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. In the face of a crisis, in other words, a, um, an equities bear market that metastasizes into the rest of the economy and causes that replay of the 1930s again, which we're, you know, on the verge of, we owe so much money that we're, we're incredibly financially fragile. And even a, um, a, a sustained equities bear market could cause something like that to happen. So the, the government will then panic. And then we'll get maybe in the second half of the year, the gigantic bailouts and the massive money creation and the negative interest rates that, uh, that we would get under the Democrats right away. <laughs> so either way, we're going to end up with something like that. And it's just a question of what we have to go through to get it. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes, what is the ultimate impact on the currency markets? In other words, is this the end of the dollar as a fiat currency? Or can it hold on? Can fiat currencies survive another gigantic round of new credit creation and new currency creation? And that we don't know because, mm-hmm. frankly, I, I thought 2008, 2009, all the bailouts then would yeah. be the end of mm-hmm. this process. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. So, uh, you know, w- whether I think it's the end or not really doesn't matter because I was wrong last time I thought it was the end. So uh, we'll just have to see. It's just hard to predict, uh, impossible to predict. But certainly, uh, you know, for the longest time, John, we could we could rely on the kindness of strangers. Foreigners would buy our, our debt, and we've gotten ourselves into deep, deep trouble, I would argue, because now we're so dependent on foreign debt. We haven't saved ourselves. We've been taught the Keynesians convinced us all that we should be spending more than we, than we earn, that we should be deficit spending our way to prosperity. Uh, and it seemed to work for a long time. But now I'm wondering what strangers are there to keep the, to keep the game going. And if there aren't any there, then it would seem that the Fed has to create money out of nothing to finance the debt, which then would leave us in, in some, um, you know, our currency in some risk, I suppose, if not a lot of risk. So, I mean, is, are, is there anybody out there that, you know, foreign entities that would really be interested in buying U.S. treasuries at virtually zero or negative real rates? Well, here's where things get kind of ironic, okay, because we're, we're talking about what a mess the U.S. is. Mm-hmm. But um, 
the rest of the world, in a lot of ways, is in even worse shape than the U.S. is. So it's completely possible because that's how um, that's how the dollar has stayed quote unquote strong for the last yeah. decade. Yeah. Is that the rest of the world is in such a, a mess that they look at us as the safe haven, <laughs> as yeah. bad as we are. Yeah. They they look at the dollar and think, well, okay, that's better than the yuan at least, or better than the euro, or better than the ruble. And so you know, rich people in these other countries are willing to hold dollars or. U.S. real estate or U.S. blue chip equities as a way of protecting themselves from what they see as even worse problems in their home countries. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 you know, you look, you look at what China is doing, for instance, they're borrowing more money than we are. And, you know, they're a smaller economy and they're a, still a developing economy. So with, with without financial markets that are nearly as deep and liquid as, as U.S. Financial, mar financial markets. So they're running the risk of a, a credit crisis that might dwarf whatever happens here, which might mean that a ton of Chinese money will flow into treasuries, right? And that'll prop up the dollar for a while longer. But none of this is a good thing because were that to happen, it would just allow us to keep borrowing even more and more money which means the crisis, when it finally happens, will be even bigger. And that, that's been the story of the last 30 years. You know, we really should have had the defining catharsis in the financial markets when the tech stock bubble burst in 2000. 2000, yep. But we kicked that can down the road to 2007 when the housing bubble burst, which also should have been the uh, you know the flush out all the bad debt in the system going bust and and us starting over from a sustainable point with older and wiser and more chastened but that didn't work either because we took on trillions and trillions and trillions of new dollars of debt in order to keep that from happening right. so now here we are even more deeply indebted than we were in those past crises uh, and we're going to try to do the same thing. So the, the only question is whether it will work again, you know, and, and I, I would argue that the numbers are just so unbelievable right now that it can't possibly work. Yeah. <laughs> but, but but we thought that before. Yeah. 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 Well, so, John, uh, China is, you know, as you say, they're going into bigger debt. But who are they who are they borrowing from? Are they not borrowing from their own people for the most part? And China yeah. has China also has this net exports, whereas we've had, you know, net I mean, we've been net, net, I mean, we've had, you know, deficit, deficits in our trade accounts for, for, I mean, ever since we went off the gold standard. So yeah. is, doesn't that make a difference? Because we are dependent, psychologically, we're dependent. Americans are dependent on living beyond our means. And now all of a sudden, if we have to, you know, if one way or another, if we're, if, you know, if the, if the piper has to be paid and we have to start you know, it's a day of reckoning, and we have to start living within our means or less than our means, essentially, to pay back what we've excessive our excessive spending in the past. It seems to me that China probably isn't in that kind of position because they're not borrowing from the rest of the world very much. I think they're starting a bond market now, a global bond market, but they haven't really borrowed that much from the rest of the world, have they? Well, they they've well they're actually borrowing a lot of dollar denominated debt right now, so yeah. they they're ramping that up. But yeah, they also borrow a lot internal. They internally they have these uh, special purpose vehicles, which are basically their shadow banking system, where some region will set up 
the, you know, a special entity that borrows money based on the creditworthiness of the region, and then they use it to create entire new cities and roads and bridges and airports and everything. Uh, but then nobody uses or lives in those new cities, so they don't generate enough cash flow to pay anything off. And right now, China's seeing a wave of defaults that mm -hmm. kind of flow back to that practice where um, state-backed entities borrow huge amounts of money because it's the state. You know, you're lending money to the government, so it's, it's risk-free. But it's not really if the entity can go bankrupt. Uh, so that's starting to happen for China. But, you know, I, I see what you're saying, though, where um, as long as we're running a trade deficit, mm -hmm. these other countries have new money coming in. Exactly. With they have foreign currencies already. Yeah. yeah. Well, see, that, that kind of looks like a perpetual motion machine because mm -hmm. we, we have a currency that everybody wants so we can issue all this new currency, right? Because they'll take dollars and we use that to buy stuff which then finances the factories that are going up all over the world. And it, it looks like you should be able to keep this going forever, but you can't really, because we're taking on debt at each step of the process that some way somehow has to be paid off. And our ability to pay off the debt is not growing nearly as fast as the debt itself. Yeah. If you look at debt as a percentage of GDP, it's soaring. It's so it, it was already higher than it was ever been before 20 years ago. And now it's some order of magnitude higher than that. So the new money has to be created in order to have liquidity to pay off the debt. So as you were saying, if the Democrats control the, the government completely, then they will be in a position uh, for fiscal spending, I suppose, or probably I think Janet Yellen is the one that uh, is being talked about as a Federal Reserve chairman. Uh, she certainly was, was no hawk. She'll be printing more money probably than, than we can imagine. I mean, it's... It seems to me that if the Democrats gain control of the whole government and they have Janet Yellen at the Fed, why uh, is John Williams not right in predicting that we're heading for a hyperinflationary event? Well, Janet Yellen is going to be the Treasury Secretary. Oh, the Treasury Secretary. She'll be in charge of the right. deficit spending. That's right. No, that's, that's exactly right. G. William Miller was the last time, I think, that a Fed, a Fed, a Federal Reserve member would, became um, the Treasury Secretary. And, that and was we know how that turned out. Yeah, yeah that, that was a, that was on its way to becoming a hyperinflationary event for sure. Before Paul Volcker stepped in, and put his foot on the brakes and stopped putting gas into the, you know, feeding gas into the economy, fuel, and then we had a, a horror, a horrific decline. I mean, that certainly won't happen this time voluntarily, will it? I, I can't imagine that anybody could do that now. What, Volker what the Paul Volcker thing? Yeah. No, no, it's impossible. Back then, we, we got away with that as a way of stabilizing an inflationary environment because mm -hmm. we were in pretty good shape financially. We didn't have that much debt back then. Yeah, exactly. But if we tried to do that now, if we raised interest rates to 18%, can you imagine all the adjustable rate mortgages and all the, um, the, the business loans that are like LIBOR plus 1% or whatever, you know, th those things would just blow up. And we have $27 trillion in U.S. debt. Imagine yeah. just what the interest would be like if we went to 5%, and, 6%. And, and see, we wouldn't even get to that point where the, the bond markets blow up because the de derivatives markets, which are infinitely larger than the bond markets, and a bunch of the derivatives out there are interest rate related, right? So if we spiked interest rates to control inflation, we would blow up the derivatives markets. So all the big banks basically would just cease to exist. Unless we bailed them out with trillions and trillions of new dollars. So, yeah. so we can't do that. I mean, we can try, but that's what would happen. You know, we would blow up the financial system, which means we have no tools left 
Mm-hmm. We're stopping inflation when it starts to accelerate. And, and Jay, I would argue that it's already accelerating. Look at the housing market right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Um, house prices are spiking for no mm-hmm. apparent reason because we're in a recession, you know, or we're just emerging from a recession. House prices never spike in a recession, but they did this time. Yeah, um, incredible. Healthcare costs are, are rising. Um, lots of other, oh, stocks and bonds, of course, are going way up. So we've got pockets of almost hyperinflation right now. And when that starts spreading to the rest of the economy, we're back in the 1970s with no way to fix it. Yeah. Michael also points out, Michael Oliver, the first segment of our show today, he's he's turning extremely bullish on commodities and on on all all of the basic commodities like oil is really starting to move. And his I would think it was two weeks ago or so he really turned bullish uh, looking at the Bloomberg Commodity Index. Uh, That's what he what he looks at. John, with just a couple of minutes left, I want to ask you, what do you make of this Bitcoin phenomenon Uh, and, um, you know, and gold and, you know, should we give up on gold and just go for Bitcoin now or what? <laughs> well, I wish I understood Bitcoin because yeah. there, there's no real valuation measure. There's not like a P.E. ratio for, <laughs> for Bitcoin that tells you when it's over and undervalued. Because, you know, it went from pennies to several thousand dollars an ounce. Then it went down to a couple hundred bucks an ounce. Then it went to $15,000 an ounce. Now it's back. And then, and then it went down to 3000 and now it's back up. I have no idea why it's doing any of these things. So mm-hmm. I don't know how to trade it. But... Um, there's no reason why cryptos in some form can't be a, a store of value in the future, but I still think gold has advantages over everything else. That's that's the bedrock of your financial life. And then you branch out into other things like cryptos and the gold mining stocks and stuff like that from there. So there's, they're not mutually exclusive. You know, the, All of these things should be part of the mix for somebody who has a fairly big crisis-related portfolio. Yeah, it's a, uh, a mix is right, and I, I don't, I can't, I can't really understand Bitcoin as well. I, I did uh, buy some and make some money on some, but uh, I don't, I don't really understand it as a speculation. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, I guess, I guess that's about it for today, John. I just want to know uh, if, if we head into a deflation. With one minute left here, we head into a deflation. What kind of things do you want to own? If we go into a hyperinflation, what kind of things do you want to own? Well, in a deflation, you might get something like March of this year when everything went down, you know, Mm -hmm. gold went down, stocks went down, everything. But the government's reaction to the beginning of a deflationary crash will be will be so overwhelmingly um, inflationary Mm -hmm. that you want to you want to be in precious metals and other kinds of real assets big time in that Mm -hmm. kind of a situation. So, you know, the story is the same as it's been for all the time that you and I've been talking. Real assets. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, we'll have to leave it go at that, John. Thank you so much for being with us again. Sure thing, Jay. We'll look forward to talking again sometime soon. Uh, Folks, that is it for this week. Next week, David McElvaney will be with me, and Dr. Quentin Henning will be back uh, next week to talk about Lion One medals. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. 
Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. 